Welcome to the Brew Files from Experimental Brewing, our quick hit series where we focus on fundamental aspects of brewing, including styles, techniques, and recipes. More brew, more flavor, more stories, less time, less ukulele. In this episode, spend enough time around homebrew forums and you'll inevitably see questions about brewing non-alcoholic beer, and the answer has been, you can't. Boiling doesn't remove enough alcohol and damages the beer anyway, and we can't afford the equipment to do it for real. But new approaches are available to us, and we're talking with Richard Priest of Escarpment Labs to help you learn how to successfully and safely make a non-alcoholic or low-alcohol beer. But first, a message from our sponsors. Getting accurate measurements of your beer is one of the keys to improving your brewing. The Pro Series Hydrometers from Brewing America will help you help your beer. These American-made NIST traceable hydrometers are accurate, easy to read, and the kits come with a cleaning brush and cloth and a borosilicate test flask that uses half the sample size of most flasks. That means less beer for testing and more beer for you. Brewing America is a small, family-owned business of husband and wife veterans, so when you buy a Brewing America hydrometer, you're not only getting a great piece of equipment, you're supporting the people who support America. Brewing America hydrometers are available on Amazon or at www.brewingamerica.com. The Seltzer Sensation is here, and our friends at Mangrove Jacks have specifically formulated their newest craft series yeast for making home-brewed hard seltzer. The Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer yeast and nutrient produces a clean, neutral flavor and aroma profile, allowing you to get creative with your hard seltzer recipe. Homebrewers can use this blend of yeast and nutrient in their own seltzer recipes, or choose from one of the new Mangrove Jacks hard seltzer recipe kits, which are formulated to make up to five gallons of refreshing 4.5% seltzer. The kits come in three thirst-quenching varieties, Raspberry Breeze, Lemon and Lime Smash, and Pineapple Sunset. Welcome back, everybody, and thank you so much for listening to those messages from our sponsors. Remember, as always, if you interact with any of them, let them know that you heard about them here on The Brew Files. So we've talked before on the main show, and we've even had Athletic Brewing on in the past, to talk about the burgeoning market of low-alcohol or specifically non-alcohol beer. And in fact, since we talked to Athletic, you're able to see that they've grown a ton. In fact, over here in California, they now have a brewery, in addition to the one they started with in Connecticut, and I can even find athletic beers in my grocery store. So, non-alcohol, big market, coming up strong, and that always leads us to the question of, hey, how can I make my own non-alcoholic beer? Turns out it's not that easy, but we figured we'd bring somebody in to help us, well, help us sketch out what we could possibly do. Introduce yourself, sir. Hi, I'm Richard Priest, uh, one of the co-founders of Escarpment Labs. We're a yeast lab up here in Canada, uh, but we do work with brewers all around the world, including in the U.S., and really our focus is on offering offering new ideas in yeast, uh, whether that's kvike yeast or hybrids or, you know, now starting to get into non-alcoholic beer. 
In fact, I have a couple of uh, your Saison strains and Quike strains that are sitting over there in the fridge right next to me, waiting to go into some wort so I can put them into the list. Love it. Alrighty. So let's just establish some ground rules here, because when we're talking about low-alcohol beer, or no-alcohol beer, really, NA beer, NA beer is not alcohol-free, but it, I think legally what? It's, it has to be under 0.5%? Yeah, most places it's 0.5. If you go and you look at like what professional brewers can do and people have been producing low alcohol beer or no alcohol beer forever and a day, they have all sorts of fancy equipment that they can use. You know, big old vacuum setups that allow them to actually extract the alcohol at the homebrew level and at the small craft beer level. Obviously that is completely impractical. None of us are going to be able to pay the money to be able to have those things out there. So really it comes down to how can we make low or no alcohol beer from a process change point of view and a microbial change point of view, which is the reason why we have Richard here. Richard, tell me something about why are you guys getting into no alcohol? Always important to start with why. Uh, the reason that we thought it was important is that we really do see this being a broader cultural trend and people, uh, you know, moving toward lower alcohol consumption or just, you know, wanting to make sure that they, they have the ability to choose, you know, when they do and don't drink, you know, plugging into that, we see a lot more interest in low alcohol or, or non-alcoholic beers. Really, that trend is being driven in Europe, but we're starting to see it pop up here in North America as well. I know you guys have talked with Athletic Brewing, you know, that's a great example. You know, it's one of the fastest growing breweries anywhere, and uh, they're making just non-alcoholic beer. So it's very clear that there's a lot of demand for this stuff. And, you know, people are, are interested in, you know, whether uh, from a health perspective or, you know, just being more careful about driving uh, or alcohol consumption, you know, we're seeing a lot of people interested in, in lower no alcohol options. And at least from my perspective, one of the things I've liked about some of these newer modern non-alcoholic beers is the fact that I can sit down, I can have something beery to relax with and still be able to go do other things. Avoiding couch syndrome, shall we say. Denny, what about you? Yeah, uh, very much so for me, too. Uh, I generally sit down in the afternoon and uh, have at least a couple glasses of carbonated water because if I'm sitting there, I just feel like I need something to drink. Uh, Non-alcoholic beer would be a great way to fill that gap. As we had mentioned before, traditionally doing non-alcoholic beer requires a lot of equipment, very expensive equipment, things that heat up and extract alcohol and trying to do as low heat as possible, but still producing, let's face it, some fairly terrible beer. Uh, I think until recently, all the non-alcoholic beer on the market was, for the most delicate way I can put it, crap. Now now we're getting to the world, like we said with Athletic, getting good-tasting non-alcoholic beer. Since homebrewers can't do things like a vacuum boil, we have to approach things from a process and microbial point of view. So, the first thing I think, Richard, we need to talk about, just to preface this up ahead, is this is not beer brewing as we normally do, because now we actually have to be concerned about stuff. Yeah, exactly. One of the, the key challenges up front of making, especially making it this way, like you, you talked about how there's technological ways like vac vacuum distillation or reverse osmosis to remove alcohol. And then there's this whole other world, and that's mostly what we'll be talking about today, of using fermentation techniques and, and mashing techniques to produce low alcohol beers. Um, either way, there's definitely some more, you know, safety precautions that need to be considered because we're really lucky when we make beer, you know, we're not making milk or anything like that. Uh, 
beer has typically has pretty high alcohol, at least by microbial standards, and that makes beer inherently safe, right? We're not going to get sick from drinking beer because the alcohol in it, the low pH, both of those things are going to inhibit any pathogens from, from ever being a concern. When we get into low or no alcohol beers, if we have a, a product that's maybe it's 0.5% alcohol, uh, we're not watching the pHs, then you can run into a situation where, you know, if you're not careful, you actually can have pathogens growing. You, you can get people sick um, with these products. So things like pasteurization and really, really being on top of the pHs becomes a lot more important with these types of products. Well, in fact, I think even uh, a number of the craft non-alcoholic beers I've had, they do things where it's like, Post uh, post fermentation acidification in order to drop the pH to push it into a less favorable range. There's a lot more that we have to worry about because, uh, let's face it, most homebrewers are kind of blithe about food safety concerns because we've all been trained. Oh, nothing can live in beer that will kill you. Well, now it can. Yeah, exactly. If you take nothing else away from this talk that we're having here today, the biggest thing I want everybody to take away is that if you're going to start trying to explore doing the world of non-alcoholic beer or low-alcoholic beer at home, this isn't something that you can just fart around about. This is now actually something you have to be very serious about, even more so serious than you are, say, if you're trying to hot water bath can something, right? You know, if you're trying to preserve food, this is the same sort of thing, but now even worse. So biggest lesson for today, be very, very careful with this. And of course, you guys have put together some wonderful documentation to start helping people think about how to do this. Let's dig into some of that. Because again, we have to do this from a process point of view. What changes in the process? Because I think it starts really with the mash. Yeah, for sure. There's there's kind of two main ways of fermenting. You know, one is arrested fermentation, basically using a regular yeast and stopping it. And another is using maltose negative yeasts that just don't ferment a lot of the sugars. But, but either way, up front you do need to produce the wort in a specific way. And that that can start with, with mashing or just with your recipe design because your final target is a beer that's typically under 0.5% alcohol. This usually means that you're starting with a, a relatively small grain bill, right? Your, your target wort is going to be fairly weak. But because of that and because, you know, your, your ultimate goal is something that tastes beery but isn't high in alcohol, uh, you do need to think about you know, how you're going to create those flavors up front. So typically when we're uh, helping someone design a recipe for non-alcoholic beer, the, the target starting gravity is, is low, right? We're usually looking around five or six Play-Doh, so, or, you know, four to six Play-Doh, so 1020 to 1030, kind of that low gravity range. And then also just thinking through downstream, you know, we want something that's going to taste and feel beery. We want to make sure that we're not just throwing like a two row at it because that's going to end up watery. And what we found to be really helpful is building in some grains that have a little bit more character or more, you know, provide more body to the malt. So, sorry, to the wort. So, you know, Vienna, Munich, uh, anything that's going to provide some melanoidins tends to work really well, for example. So, again, we're starting low gravity. And I think I read something like it's not just you know using uh, not just two row but using bigger base malts, but even actually moving away from like as heavy of a base malt load, right? I mean, I think most of the beers I make end up being somewhere around say like eighty five percent to ninety five percent base malt, 
with other things on top of it to characterize it. When we're doing a no alcohol beer, it's actually way less, right? We skew that percentage. Absolutely. Yeah. Like the, when we've done testing in house, um, and I, yeah, I want to give a shout out to Chris Saunders and Eugene Fletcher. They did most of the testing here to, you know, bring these ideas to life. We were often doing like 50 50, you know, Vienna or Munich to, to, to pale malt. So a, a pretty, it'd be a pretty wacky ratio, I think, for a, for a regular, you know, pale ale or something like that. But it, it, it tends to work pretty well for these beers. Again, you have to kind of change what your mind is about what your what a proper recipe should look like. And uh, thanks actually for reminding me because we actually, Denny, it was what three years ago I think we did a show at HomebrewCon, and Chris actually came on and showed us some of the the things he was working on in terms of non-alcoholic beer. That's right. I remember that. It was very interesting. Uh, I can't say they were the best beers I've ever had, but it was uh, very interesting to see the beginning of the concept happening. Yeah. And that's another thing to mention is, you know, even us getting to the point of a commercial non-alcoholic yeast has been several years in the making. It's uh, it's not easy. (laughs) You just didn't like whip it up over a weekend or something? No, we had to go back to the drawing board a few times. Well, and so the first part of that drawing board is changing what we think of as an, as an grist. Yep. So favoring more of the character malts, because again, we're not going to get, one, we don't have a lot of malt to begin with, and we need to have residual flavors around that are going to actually say, hey, this is beer. We also change the, 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 the sort of general direction that we take the mash, right? Like in terms of temperatures. Yeah. So with these kinds of beers, you know, really the, the other goal is that we want to limit the, uh, amount of fermentable sugars, you know, and that's true for arrested fermentation. That's also true for maltose negative yeast. So what we can do is we can alter the mashing temperature. So what we found to be effective, and and I know what a lot of, a lot of folks do is use a, you know, a high mashing temp, like higher than you would normally use for, for a brew, something in the 74 to, to 80 Celsius range. So that's like 160. 160, 165. So like really kind of on the high end of the range. The reason for that is that it, it, it helps to create a less fermentable wort with, with, uh, with a higher uh, amount of unfermentables. So again, that's helping to kind of keep that body in what is otherwise, you know, a pretty, pretty low malt beer. And then the other big part is just limiting the amount of fermentables for, for the yeast. And that's especially important for using the maltose negative yeasts. In that system, we, we want to give them a little bit of glucose, fructose to ferment, and then we don't want them to touch the maltose, and then it makes making a non-alcoholic beer really easy. And likewise, uh, if you're doing an arrested ferment with Saccharomyces, you also want to you know limit the fermentables because you need to get on top of that and you know either crash out or centrifuge out the yeast before it goes too far. That process is almost impossible at the homebrew scale, um, yeah. by the way, but it is common at the industrial scale. Guys, as homebrewers, we are always carrying way more yeast loads in our in our beer than we think we are. <laughs> Look, I've got a brilliantly clear beer. Yep, nope, still yeast in there. And yeah, so again, what we're trying to do is a higher mash, generate more uh, maltose and maltotriose. You know, so the, like the, the bigger, longer chain uh, sugars. And you're saying like the maltose negative ones can't touch either of those, right? Yeah. So we're just freeing up a little bit of glucose, fructose, sucrose, which, you know, even in a normal ward is a relatively small proportion of the overall sugars. 
freeing up enough that you get a fermentation with a maltose negative yeast, but enough that you're you're able to keep that ABV well under 0.5. So again, targeting an original gravity 1020 to 1030, mashing temperatures up around uh, thinking in Fahrenheit, yeah, 160, 165. So really actually thinking of instead of doing a mash, almost really just instantly taking your mash to mash out temperatures. Pretty much, yeah. So the, the other thing to consider here is that that ends up being pretty awful for efficiency. So usually uh, it takes a couple trials to, to dial in the, the, the uh, brew house efficiency with this process. Well, so speaking of that, like how much of a drop do you, do you think that you would kind of ballpark? You know I mean, are we talking like you're going to get 50% efficiency from your, from your mash or? Yeah, like we found it, it typically you'll get about 20% lower than you usually do. Good rule of thumb. So at 20% more grain, even though you're still going low. Which actually, if you think about most homebrewer systems, that's probably okay for them because most homebrewer systems have sort of a minimum comfortable grain load in them. Okay, so we're trying to produce a very rich wort, higher chain sugars. Does anything change about our water? I mean, we always think about how water chemistry impacts the the flavor of the beer. Here, particularly because we're dealing with sort of a, a weirder beer idea, do we have to think about water any differently? Yeah, in a few different ways. So like number one is that water has flavor and, and in something that is, you know, more in less less malt, then uh, it means that the flavor of the water is going to shine through. So if you've got really wacky, you know, brewing water, then you're going to you're going to taste it in these products. The other part is that, of course, water and water profile is is a, is a key determinant of pH, both in wort and beer. And, you know, as we talked about before, final pH is something that needs to be controlled in these beers. So if you've got, you know, really hard water, then you're going to, you know, you're going to have to acidify more to get that beer into a, into a a safe range. If you have really soft water, then you're going to have to acidify less. So that also plays, plays a role um, in the recipe design. When I think of low alcohol brewing, right? So if no alcohol is under 0.5 generally, it's usually see what low alcohol brew being somewhere between 0.5 and two and a half or three. So that kind of puts it close to a lot of like British session beers. Yeah. And I think about British session beers and they almost always have a fairly high mineral load to them from your tests. Do I want a high mineral load or am I trying to avoid that? Not, not thinking from a pH impact, but thinking from an organoleptic impact. Yeah. It might come down to personal preference. I, I myself am a fan of, a higher mineral load in in lower alcohol beers like i think it just helps add flavor when you're not getting the flavor from from as much malt even just thinking about brewing like a three percent saison something like that i think you're going to get a little bit more character from a higher mineral load than you would from like super super soft water and i think that would be true for a for a non-alcoholic beer as well you know it can help to have some of those water flavors to, to balance out what might be missing from from malt and from 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 fermentation give it a, give it a shot at least the use cases that we see out there in the world indicate that a high mineral character can actually help you in these just from a flavor point of view so we got that from our water again paying attention to ph because ph now not only becomes a matter of efficiency but also a matter of food safety grist changes to be more character malts Less efficient, higher higher mash temperatures get longer chain sugars. Anything change in the boil or how I have to think about hops? What we found to to work really well is is a slightly higher hopping rate than you might think, like given the gravity. It's really, really what I will say is it's really, really, really hard to make a really good tasting, you know, non alcoholic lager this way. You know, light 
logger kind of thing. That's where some of those other technologies have an advantage. But if you're making a non-alcoholic pale ale or anything with a little bit higher IBU, that tends to be where the, the fermented approaches uh, like maltose negative yeast can really shine because you're able to, in a lot of cases, preserve a lot of that aroma. And what we find is that higher hopping rate, higher bitterness can also counteract some of the either sweetness or wordiness from the unfermented sugars. Uh, yeah, see, that's what I was wondering, because you got to think, even though maltose and maltotrios aren't very, well, not very, but they're not as sweet tasting to the human palate, they still do come off as, the, yeah, as you said, warty. And they will have sweetness. So yeah, it makes some sense that you'd want a little extra bump up in order to actually get there. And then I'm assuming as we fall into like later editions, as we're trying to avoid like, or as we're no longer picking up IBUs and we're thinking about Whirlpool or dry hopping, I'm guessing not much changes there. Although actually interesting now that I think about it, everybody's uh, favorite topic <laughs> du jour about dry hopping with hop creep. Yeah, if you're not paying attention to that, if you can actually cause it, because I know, Denny, you've tried to cause hop creep in the past and failed to. But if you did actually get hop creep in this particular case, that could really, really be bad. Yeah, hopping is not really a concern in the hot side, but then in the cold side, absolutely. Um, you know, hop creep can result in enzymes breaking down larger sugars, which then means that, you know, it's just like diastaticus where you get glucose basically being released into the wort. So if you're using a maltose negative yeast and, and you've uh, heavily dry hopped, then there's a chance you're going to get hop creep in it releasing glucose into the wort, which which might then mean that you're getting the ABV higher than it's than it's intended. So like that is a risk for, you know, especially if, if you're on the commercial side and, and, and need that ABV to be below 0.5%. Uh, hop creep is, is a risk. But there are also ways to avoid that too. Like I know some, you know, for these kinds of more sensitive products, some, some folks have been experimenting with either, um, like you can kind of do the dip hopping thing where the hops are heated before they're added, or there's more hop extract, aroma extract products coming on the market that can really help out here too. Right. And so, you know, the, the, the real thing is we just want to avoid creating additional bug food. Exactly. <laughs> Good way to put it. It's a double-edged sword because, you know, hops are also antimicrobial, so they help you in some way, but they're also a risk in others. That's a good point. Well, now, so speaking of microbes, we've gone through the other parts of the process. We've seen how that's changed. Now we get into the back end. You had mentioned trying to do arrested fermentation with Saccharomyces, which, you know, also is sort of impractical at the homebrew level unless you have far greater technology than I do. Let's talk microbes of choice and you know, the, the one that actually caught my attention was the one that you just announced, the NAY. So tell me, tell me what are my choices here for trying to take a high maltose, maltotrios wort and turn it into something that I can drink that won't get me drunk? Yeah, so you can just kind of three buckets of options. You can take that wort, ferment it with Saccharomyces, like regular ale yeast, but it's going to end up above 1%, typically, you know, 1% to 1.5%. So if that's, you know, if that's what you're looking for, that will work great. It's very easy and simple. The other option is to use uh, a maltotriose negative yeast. So you have, you know, you, it, you can get that to 0.5 or below. Um, so, for example, Fermentus has has a, a product like that on the market. I think it's called LA01 or something like that. Um, so that's an option. That's an, as far as I understand, it's a, it's a Saccharomyces engineered to, to not be able to ferment the maltotriose. So it'll still ferment the maltose, but it'll attenuate to 50 or 60%. 
And then the third option is a maltose negative yeast. So a yeast that's, that's not going to touch the maltose or the maltotriose. They're just going to ferment the glucose and fructose. That's what our NAY or, or, or NA falls into. Typically, these are non-saccharomyces yeast. So there's a lot of different species that uh, people have been playing around with for, for this approach. We found that this, uh, this strain of this species uh, works the best. It's called Hansonia spora uverum. It's a, it's a yeast that shows up really commonly in, in wine and cider ferments, especially at the start of the ferment. It's pretty fast growing, you know, likes to get in basically before Saccharomyces does. Um, the nice thing about it is there's a lot of flavor diversity in this species. So we were able to find some strains that are non-phenolic, for example, strains that are phenolic, fruity, non-fruity. There's, there's some diversity there, which is really cool. Yeah, did I read on your website that this one was harvested off of crab apples in your area? It was, yeah. This was early days of, of escarpment and, you know, a testament to just hoarding as many microbes as we possibly can. But <laughs> we were, uh, at the time, we were working out of a local brewery, Wellington Brewery, and uh, the, the brewmaster there had got a bunch of crab apples from someone for something, and they, they kind of just started fermenting on their own. So we pulled a sample and plated it out and banked the microbes and, you know, revisited, in this case, revisited it four or five years later uh, for non-alcoholic beer. So, you know, it's a pretty funny origin story. You know, <laughs> cool yeast is everywhere, literally everywhere. Yeah, see, now you can have that discussion with with the people in your life going, I'm not a hoarder, I'm saving this for when it's useful. <laughs> yeah. So, NAY, you said, okay, does not attack, it's, it's maltose negative, so it doesn't ferment any of the maltose or the maltotriose or any of those higher sugars. What is it actually doing with the glucose and the sucrose? I assume generating a little bit of alcohol, but, yep. you know, I mean, what else is happening? So, I mean, it's a lot like uh, Saccharomyces. Like, it's going to take the sugars. It's going to, first of all, it's going to grow. You know, it's going to produce some more biomass, some more cells. But then it's also going to ferment some of those sugars as well into into alcohols, for example. So, you know, in this strain's case, it mostly produces ethanol. It produces a little bit of glycerol as well, uh, which is nice. Adds a little bit of body and mouthfeel. But it, it ultimately does work a lot like, you know, our, our regular Saccharomyces that we're used to using. It just doesn't touch the malt sugars. Okay, so again, I mean, we're getting some of those flavor compounds. We're getting some of the aromatic compounds because you'd mentioned, hey, we got some of these that do phenols, some of them that don't. And we get just that tiny little bit of alcohol just based on the, the amount of the glucose and the sucrose that we have in there. One thing I've been wondering about is that there are certain types of beer that turn out better when using uh, this yeast? I mean, is it is it better to, I mean, you, you mentioned like, uh, you know, like uh, like a nail, like an American light lager is not a very good candidate for it. Uh, would something like, say, like a porter have be end up better than, say, a pale ale, for instance? I think anything in the, you know, American ale end of the end of the spectrum will work great like whether it's a porter or a pale ale like anything where you can have some more character from the malt uh, a little bit higher hopping rate i think that can work really well just to counteract any of the residual uh sweetness and also just you know not having as much alcohol flavor so like something like a porter where you have some pretty pretty flavorful grains in the mix that that can really that can really work you know, we've seen most people making pale ales, but it's not to say that you can't throw a bunch of sots at it and make make like a pilsner or something like that. Then you'll have to try and make a non-alcoholic West Coast IPA. <laughs> yeah, eventually, yes. Uh, after I get done with all the other variations of it, I have to make. And when we're doing the ferment, going back to the ferment here real quick, 
Yeah, I, I know what I need to do in order to keep my yeast happy and fermenting in terms of temperature control and all that sort of fun stuff. Any unusual or any difference in what we have to do with, say, something like the NAY? Um, in, in general, like at least in the case of the, the NAY, like it, it has a pretty similar temperature range to ale yeast. So, you know, 15 to 25 Celsius in our case, which is like 64 to 75 kind of thing. Works pretty well. Uh, obviously, you know, like regular yeast, it'll be slower at colder temperatures and faster at higher temperatures. One of the cool things with these ferments or these yeasts is that your fermentation isn't actually that long because it, it's really only fermenting the glucose and fructose. And as long as you select the right yeast, it's, it'll get through those pretty quickly. So oftentimes we see the ferments are done in two, three, four days, you know, rather than a typical beer ferments a little bit longer than that. So you know, that's kind of nice because it, it just doesn't have as far to go in terms of the fermentation. Again, assuming that I want to get my beer, or I'm going to assume I want to get my beer as clean as possible on the on the outside, so that I'm not I don't have a huge microbial load in the beer when I go to say a keg or a bottle, cold crashing, all that sort of good stuff, biofine, you know, at least at our level. I'm assuming filtering would be fantastic too, but yeah, the I think the challenge, and, and you know, this isn't true. This is true of the NAY and a lot of the other maltose negative yeasts. Is a lot of them don't flocculate like like you know normal brewing yeasts do. So sometimes it can take a little bit longer to you know if you're cold crashing to clarify. So that is something where like filtering or fining can be really really helpful for these kinds of beers. And, and the other thing is that can also help to reduce the microbial load for for when you're downstream packaging and serving it yeah somebody's just gonna have to come up with a way for uh well you know a homebrew size centrifuge come on somebody get on it <laughs> no please no <laughs> so i've got what really appears to be like a fairly standard ferment although shorter because we're not dealing with a ton of sugar do as much as i can to clear everything out now when i go to keg this or bottle this what else do I have to do? Because I'm kind of thinking when we when we first talked about safety, I've got to be very careful here, right? Yeah. So I mean, it, it kind of depends on <laughs> on how you're on how like whether you're able to pasteurize it or not, right? Like it, it is definitely a challenge if if you're not able to sterile filter or or pasteurize, right? Like that's a case where you need to be very careful. The the key thing at this stage, the kind of the key control point, would be pH. Again, because it's a limited fermentation, you're going to see a smaller pH drop. So a lot of the times these beers might finish in mid to high fours. And you really, really want to drop that down below 4.2. Just just in terms of uh, microbial stability, there's a lot of, you know, the vast majority of pathogens are, are inhibited below pH 4.5. So getting down to 4.2 or around the 4 to 4.2 is a great target. Uh, helps to make sure that the product is, sta- is safer you know, regardless of whether or not you're you're pasteurizing, my recommendation is pasteurizing, but there might be some cases where that's not possible. The four two or below, what with like lactic acid or phosphoric acid? Yeah, any anything you would normally use to acidify a, a wort or a beer. You know, uh, phosphoric acid is nice because it's neutral, but you know, lactic acid will work too. And, and of course, if you're doing this, in you know, it's it's imperative that you actually measure it and that you make sure that you're actually hitting all that. Yeah, calibrate that meter. Yeah. Calibrate that meter, uh, you know, make sure that you're not only, and not only do a run on the samples that you're using to determine the load that you have to add to your wort or to your finished beer, but also do a run on the finished beer to ensure that you didn't mess up your calculations somehow. Yep. Now we get that into package. 
again, keep everything as sanitary as possible. Keep everything as cold as possible because at least, you know, again, one of the biggest advantages homebrewers have over professional brewers is we can keep our beer cold the whole time. So yep, don't yep. forget about this. Because now, I mean, really, I really you're dealing with, at least at the homebrew level, what would be a unsterilized jar of sort of safe wort. Pretty much, yeah. Right. So you, you got to keep this as as cold and as clean as possible so that you minimize your chances of screwing anything up. Okay, the NAY currently is available to professional brewers. I'm assuming maybe at some point in time this will become available to homebrewers with a bunch of caveats. <laughs> yeah, definitely with some, some caveats. Uh, yeah, we're, we're still... You know, trying to kind of keep a tight leash on on this particular yeast right now, just because we also want to make sure that it's working in you know every use case that the brewers throw at it. You know, there are some things that we haven't tried yet, and we're you know really excited by the the excitement of of the craft brewers to try out some different ideas. And you know, based on the feedback we get, you know, we'll be able to make the decision of of when and how we make it available for homebrewing as well. Because you know, we we definitely know that the demand is there. You know, when we launched it, we had all sorts of messages from people saying, you know, when is this available for homebrew? When is this available for homebrew? So <laughs> I know that the demand is there, but uh, yeah, we, we also really want to make sure that we're able to provide all the, all the education and all the resources necessary to, to help people make this stuff safely. And as we've talked about this and as I've read about doing this, the one thing I keep thinking about is this is the one time in making beer when I think that you have to, forego Charlie's sage advice and other parts of homebrewing and don't relax and don't have a homebrew because <laughs> you really have to focus. Yeah. I, I hate to say it, but it is a uh, don't relax and worry kind of, kind of situation. <laughs> Pay attention. <laughs> uh, I mean, because again, you are potentially making something that could be contaminated in a way that beer can't be or generally can't be. <laughs> I hate I hate giving absolutes because then somebody points out where you're wrong. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, really. It's always there, you know. Okay. Any other thoughts? Because I mean, that takes us all the way to the keg. That takes us to the to the glass and the ability to actually be able to have this. Are there any other thoughts or concerns that we should have as people looking to potentially do a non-alcoholic beer? Uh, the other thing that I would say is like it is possible to you know pasteurize or, or you know sterilize beer at home so i know people there's there's some really good groups out there like there's a non-alcoholic uh, facebook group for non-alcoholic home brewing and and i know some people have talked there about using using you know hot water baths and things like that for uh, pasteurizing bottles so and this is also one of those cases where i would say you know don't don't overlook the the value of a sturdy bottle because you could you could bottle the beer at least if you're force carbonating it you could force carbon bottle it and pasteurize those bottles and, and that would be a way to make it super safe there uh, there you go yeah that, that would definitely work and i mean yes you lose the advantage of having draft beer but you lose all you gain the advantage of not potentially killing yourself <laughs> <laughs> which which is always an advantage yeah go figure we got the idea uh, really give the the idea of doing bottle uh, pasteurization a go that would be a great place for using like any of those sort of recycled german uh, vice beer bottles uh, for instance, those big, heavy brown glass bottles. Denny, any last questions about non-alcoholic beer making? Uh, no, I don't think so, man. Uh, I mean, I may after I digest all the info we just heard, but I think that uh, that it's been a really good discussion of uh, 
uh, you know, why you might want to do it and how you might want to do it and then why you might not want to do it. And sweet baby Jesus, be safe. Yeah, that's right. That's the, the number one takeaway. All you homebrewers out there listening to this, don't think that it's as easy as uh, just not producing alcohol. All right. Well, Richard, any last words of wisdom? Uh, again, uh, you know, for people that are looking to get into, you know, low alcohol brewing, non-alcoholic brewing uh, at home and, you know, before these products are available, you know, widely to homebrewers, I would say, you know, try out some of the other things that we talked about, like even just making the wort this way, but fermenting it with a regular ale yeast or even some of the lower attenuation ale yeasts out there, like some of the English strains, you can still get something around 1%. And again, if you're not legally bound to make something below 0.5%, maybe 1% is great for you. And in which case, you know, all of these other resources are available to you and you can get started. And as always, we'll include links in the show notes to all the documentation that Escarpment's put on, not only about NAY, but you guys have a couple of sets of instructions for making low-alcohol, non-alcoholic beer. And we'll include links to some other resources online so you can go do some exploration. And as always, if you have questions, things that we haven't covered, send us in a, uh, send us in a question at podcast.experimentalbrew.com, and we'll make sure to get your questions answered. And hopefully you'll be able to move on with your journey. I do kind of think, like, Denny and I are both on the record as being huge fans of session beers, right? But typically for me, that's more around three. But I don't see anything wrong at the homebrew level of trying to do a 1% or, or somewhere in that area. Because again, to your point, we're not legally bound to you know try and keep things at 0.5% or lower. I highly encourage people to explore the idea of how you can make beer that still gives you the beer experience without necessarily giving you all the buzz. Before I forget... I know you guys sell online from your store in Canada, but your yeasts are available here in the U.S. too. Yes, so we do have a partner right now for homebrew pitches. Uh, it's uh, it's called Patent Brewing. Uh, it's this guy named Matt out of the D.C. area. Uh, you can you can pick up homebrew pitches through him, and that's shipping within the U.S. And then we we do direct ship to the pro brewers. You know, we're always we're always willing to take on more homebrew shops in the U.S. as well. So if uh, if any any homebrew shops are listening, uh, you know, we're happy to chat. Listeners will remember we had Matt on ooh, a couple of years back now. He's been too busy with COVID recently. But we had Matt on a while back talking about hop terpenes. Go and check that out, and you can also get uh, some yeast from him as well. I think that's it. I think we know how to, how to make beer with, without the buzz, and we know the dangers, and we know the tips. So let's go make some. Maybe. <laughs> <laughs> you always got to put a stinker on it, don't you, dude? Well, man, you know, uh, you just got to be careful. Yep. Thank you, everyone, for joining us on another episode of The Brew Files. We hope that you enjoyed this discussion about making non- and low-alcohol beer at home with new microbes at hand, and even just the mention of formulating a very small grain bill with lesser attenuating yeast, you finally have a shot of making a non- or low-alcoholic brew. Remember, you just have to be safe. Now, did we miss any questions that you'd have about making a low or non-alcoholic brew? Are you going to actually try it? Drop us a line. And speaking of which, remember, if you have show ideas, styles, brews, techniques, ingredients, etc., you can drop us a line at podcast.experimentalbrew.com. You can reach us at denny at experimentalbrew.com or drew at experimentalbrew.com. You can find us on Twitter at EXP Brewing, on Instagram, on Facebook, on Reddit, and just about every homebrew forum out there. And of course, you can always find us at www.experimentalbrew.com. And don't forget, you can support the podcast by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. You can click the HA, Amazon, or BYO links on the website. 
and by going to Patreon and pledging a buck or two or more to our charitable cause, which for this part of the year is still being determined, but it's coming. Until next time, remember the brew is out there, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Brew Files. This episode is brought to you by the American Homebrewers Association. This February, the HA encourages you to reconnect with your love of homebrewing and show your homebrew equipment some special attention by getting it cleaned up and ready to brew. Use promo code CLEAN to receive a free bottle of PBW cleaning tablets when you join or renew your AHA membership in February or while supplies last. Get your free PBW with promo code CLEAN and find February inspiration with craft beer recipes, beer, and food pairing suggestions, and much more by visiting homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental today. Once again, that's homebrewersassociation.org slash experimental, promo code CLEAN. CLEAN.